What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? What the hell is going on, Mark? Well, first of all, what the hell is going on with your hair? Oh, sh- So for those of you who are at our live episode, you know that Daddy was a blonde. <laughs> No, well, Daddy is a redhead. Daddy, Daddy was a blonde with some blue. No. <laughs> oh, yes. As I said to my Georgetown class, I try to think out of the box. Sometimes it doesn't work out that well. <laughs> anyway. well apparently you colored your hair out of your box. Because... <laughs> and, I, and my hairdresser did this. I won't add his name because I don't want to hurt his business. But <laughs> what but are we actually talking about? What we were talking about the growing contention on the left that critical race theory is a lie, that Republicans won the Virginia election by misleading low-information voters, by telling them that critical race theory was being taught in their schools when, in fact, it wasn't. And don't take my word for it. Let's hear them say it themselves. What should Democrats possibly do differently to avoid similar losses in November, especially as Republicans are now successfully running on culture war issues and false claims about critical race theory? This election has become the latest to weaponize something called critical race theory. Critical race theory is kind of, it's become the new dog whistle, except you can actually hear it, so it's not really a dog whistle. Yeah, let's start there. Critical race theory not taught in Virginia schools. But it does show that Republicans are good. It's dishonest. It's, it's not a good faith argument, but they are talented at branding. They're talented at making an election about certain issues, even if they don't have any basis in reality. One key issue for Youngkin, opposition to the teaching of critical race theory in schools. The curriculum is not taught in Virginia schools, and McAuliffe has called the tactic a racist dog whistle. So there you have it. This is the line that's going on today, that this is not being taught in schools, that parents don't know what they're talking about, that evil conservatives are manipulating people and weaponizing critical race theory to spread lies and win elections, Danny. Is that what's happening? So I think what we see is the sort of the technical response to the accusation that critical race theory is being taught in school. Critical race theory isn't being taught in K-12 through because critical race theory is something that is indeed for graduate schools and for law schools. But critical race theory informs a way of thinking, and I think that's the right way to talk about it. It informs a way of thinking that involves re-racializing our society, rejecting the norms that we have come to understand about comity between races and, in fact, deliberately separating out whites from blacks and recasting our national narrative based on mostly the historic sin of slavery, but also on other related sins. And it is basically the theory behind the New York Times' much debunked and yet still taught 1619 project. The line that critical race theory is a lie is a lie. It is. And just to give you a little bit of example of the bias that we see in the reporting on this. So the New York Times, a reporter named Stephanie Saul, had this big story on how Loudoun County became the epicenter. One of the points she makes is that after the racial justice protests last year, Loudoun County schools tried to respond. And one of the things they did is they, quote, hired a consulting firm to help train teachers about bias. And then she goes on with her story. And I went to look at what that consulting firm was and what it was teaching. And it's a consulting firm 
called the Equity Collaborative, which was paid $314,000 by the Loudoun County School District. It is a consulting firm that turns critical race theory into practices for building more equitable learning environments. And I went into their website and found their presentation, Introduction to Critical Race Theory, in which they instruct (laughs) teachers, quote, that racism is an inherent part of American civilization and attack the idea of colorblindness, neutrality of law, incremental change, and equal opportunity for all for maintaining whites' power and strongholds within society. It questions the idea of meritocracy, which allows empowered to feel good and have a clear conscience, and concludes with a breakout session for teachers to discuss how might you use CRT to identify and address systemic oppression in your school. That covers it. Here are the talking points that they gave for the teachers in Virginia, paid by Loudoun County taxpayers. They encouraged them not to profess colorblindness, but rather, quote, admit your own racist, sexist, heterosexist, and other detrimental attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, and feelings, and acknowledge that addressing one's whiteness, e.g. white privilege, is crucial for effective teaching. So, yes, students are not sitting down and reading Ibram X. Kendi, though he is producing a version of his book for children, which I'm sure will be taught in schools somewhere. They are not sitting down and reading Richard Delgado and the legal tracts about critical race theory, but they are being taught by teachers who are being indoctrinated in these beliefs, who are being taught to teach students that the world is divided into a class of oppressors and oppressed and which you are depends on your race, that if you are white, you are part of the oppressor class and you need to own it parents saw this firsthand during the lockdowns. They know what their kids are being taught. They're not getting this from Glenn Young. The reason Glenn Young can succeeded in using this issue is because he tapped into something that voters were feeling and experiencing in their own lived experience. And so when you say to people, this is a lie, they automatically dismiss you. Randy Weingarten, who everybody knows is the president of the American Federation of Teachers, tweeted, critical race theory is not taught in K-12 schools. The rights culture warriors are labeling any discussion of race, racism, or discrimination as such to try to make it toxic. They're bullying teachers and trying to keep them from teaching the truth. I mean, what BS. But my favorite particular tweet on this was from Jamie Harrison, the chair of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. CRT is just another Lee Atwater racial dog whistle from the GOP, America's fascism party. Not one damn K-12 through school in Virginia is teaching this theory, which is taught in law schools. Hashtag GOP of lies. Hashtag GOP of division. What the is wrong with these people? What is wrong with them? What's wrong with them is they're liars. Look, no, hang on a second. You know what? I want the history of slavery and Jim Crow and the Civil War and Reconstruction and all of that to be taught in schools. I want my children to be tolerant, and I want them to understand that America has done things in its past and will continue to do things in the future that are imperfect, that are wrong. But the notion that the head of one political party, and I think the Republican, frankly, the head of the Republican National Committee also engages in this sort of talk, calls the GOP a party of fascists is just disgraceful. What is wrong with people? Well, here's the thing. Glenn Youngkin campaigned on saying that we should teach all of our history, including its horrific chapters. It's a straw man. I don't think there's a single person, a serious person in the political universe who thinks we shouldn't be teaching about slavery. We shouldn't be teaching about Jim Crow. We shouldn't be teaching about all these different things. But here's the other thing. If you ask most parents, what do you want your kids to be taught about race? Here's what most of them will say. We want them to learn that discrimination is wrong. 
We want them to be taught to be colorblind, to not see people through the prism of race, to see them through the content of their character, through whether they're good people or, or not. That is the opposite of what CRT-inspired curriculums teach. They teach you know, little kids, especially young ones in the kindergarten and pre-K and, and first and second and third grade, they literally don't see colors. Most oh, yeah, no, no, no. They, they, you, they have to be taught. A white kid has to be taught to see a black kid as other. And this is what they actually are advocating. You have to see Jimmy not as your friend, but as your black friend. <laughs> and you have to see yourself as his white oppressor. <laughs> and you're responsible for the fact that Jimmy doesn't have an equal shot in the world. And that is just so pernicious to it, infect our children with that kind of thinking. Look, it teaches intolerance. Yes. And the problem is it doesn't just teach intolerance about racism. It teaches intolerance about everything. It teaches you that if somebody is wrong, for example, if somebody is wrong about one thing, they're wrong about everything. And not only does that person deserve to be condemned, that person deserves to be publicly autodefed. That person deserves to be publicly shamed. You know, we have seen this throughout history. It never ends well. You know, the Jacobin did not end well. And when I last wrote about the Jacobin, I wrote about it in the context of Donald Trump, who I think also belongs to this sort of extremist version of baby in the bathwater should be thrown out that never ends happily. And the notion that sweet little children, you know, and we've all seen them. You know, you and I who work on DuPont Circle, there's a little class, a little uh, a school across the, the street from us. And you always see these little two and three-year-olds with their little rope yes. walking along, <laughs> right? And they're little black kids, they're little white kids, they're little Asian kids, and they are the most adorable thing everywhere. Imagine one of them coming home and just saying, my black friend said this. I mean, yuck. <laughs> why does this need to be part of our society? I don't understand why it's not abhorrent to everybody. We don't want to teach children to see everything through the prism of race. I think it was very interesting because why are we really having this discussion? Okay, we're having this discussion, one, because of the controversy over education, but two, because it was such a big feature in this off-year election, in particular in Virginia. And it has spawned with it a whole series of reactions like the one that, you know, that I read from Randy Weingarten and from the Democratic National Committee. And I think that that reaction that this is racism, not this is something we need to think about, is really problematic. Even when Donald Trump won the election in 2016, you saw the Democratic Party kind of turn in on itself and say, OK, what went wrong here? That is done. Nobody is turning around at that high political level and saying, what went wrong here? Who did we betray? Who did we let down? Why did people turn from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party? They're not asking that question. What they're saying is all those people who voted for Joe Biden last year, they're now racists. There's a terrific writer at The Atlantic who has diagnosed this problem and is basically calling out the left and saying, you cannot win elections by telling people that what they're seeing with their own eyes is not happening and that this is a real, this is a concern, it's dangerous. And it's not just dangerous for our country. He's a liberal. He doesn't want Donald Trump to win. He didn't want Glenn Youngkin to win. It's dangerous for the Democratic Party. I think that's right. Look, you and I have said this a thousand times. The best outcome for any liberal democracy is to have two healthy political parties or even more than two healthy political parties. And the state of our politics is not healthy. Yasha Monk, 
does a great job, not just in analyzing this for his writing in The Atlantic, but on a lot of other issues. And we don't always agree perfectly, but he is a thoughtful, classical liberal and the kind of person from whom we learn a lot. He's a writer, an academic, a public speaker, and uh, an associate professor of practice at International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University. Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. I shouldn't stumble over that since I went there. Uh, he's also he's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and the founder of the journal Persuasion. And also has a terrific podcast. He also has a terrific podcast called The Good Fight. He's written three books. He's in the process of writing another one that he tells us a little bit about. So here's our interview. Well, Yasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're so excited to have you here. The proximate reason for our invitation is that you wrote this terrific article in The Atlantic, where you write a lot of terrific articles, but you wrote this very interesting article about critical race theory in the debate and how it affected the Yunkin race in Virginia. Suffice it to say, I think I'm correct in saying that you're not a Trump supporter or a Yunkin supporter. Is that right? No, I'm, I'm certainly not a Trump supporter. In fact, I was one of the people warning about how the rise of far-right populism was dangerous to democracy before it was cool. So I like to call myself democracy hipster. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, you're a democracy hipster. That's great. But you pointed out, we're hearing from a lot of voices on the left, conservatives are lying about critical race theory. This is not being taught in our schools. It's this esoteric academic debate that's only being debated in law schools and really doesn't affect uh, K through 12 students. And you said that that was intellectually dishonest and electorally disastrous. Tell us what you meant. <laughs> Yeah, so look, it is true that critical race theory is an academic theory that emerged particularly in law schools in the, you know, depending on how you count, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, trying to critique the ways in which supposedly neutral laws often had racially discriminatory effects. And it is certainly true that with some small exceptions, I imagine, high school students, certainly middle school and elementary school students, are not poring over the academic articles published in, you know, law review journals by, say, Crimberly Crenshaw. That's certainly true. But in, you know, the meaning of words can change and broaden. And clearly what Republican candidates like Glenn Yankin are talking about when we talk about critical race theory is a broader set of ideas about the nature and history of our country, about the nature of racial relations today, about how we should think about race and whether we should encourage ethnic identification among students that are inspired by all of these changes in academia in important ways and that have been at the center of public debate over the last few years and decades. So when you think of something like the 1619 Project from the New York Times, which is being turned into school curricula that claimed at one point that not only is slavery an important and terrible part of American history, but in some ways it should be the founding moment of America rather than the American Revolution. When you think of attempts in schools to sometimes separate students depending on the ethnic groups in order to get them to identify more strongly with the ethnic identity so that they can use that as a kind of locus of political resistance, when you think of the language of white privilege and the way in which some schools are asking students to take steps forward or back, depending on the kind of skin color they have, depending on whether they have two parents, depending on you know, the immigration status they might have as a way of 
raising consciousness of privilege. All of those are in a broad sense inspired by these academic changes. And that's what Republicans are talking about when we talk about critical race theory. Now, we can have legitimate debates about just how widespread those practices and pedagogical approaches are in schools. We can have disagreements about whether some of those changes are positive and what aspects of them are negative. But to sort of say to people, look, you know, critical race theory does not exist. It's just something that's taught in law schools and you all are just confused and, you know, have fallen no, confused and racist campaign is, I think, just naive, right? People are responding to real things going on in schools, and Democrats need to decide what aspect of that to defend, what aspect of that to condemn, to that to abandon. But just sort of lecturing voters that are believing a lie is not a way to level with them. Needless to say, I agree with you, not just as a parent, but also as a Virginia voter. What's interesting to me about your observations is that you wrote this piece about the Virginia election, about critical race theory and its role in that. And just previous to that, you wrote another piece about the case of Dorian Abbott. Now, not everybody knows this, and I guess I don't realize what a bubble we live in because I was just talking about this with my brother and said, you know, that that case really appalled me because it was so different. And he said, I don't know who you're talking about. So tell people a little bit about that case, because I think that people are responding to a genuine change. It's not just that people like Glenn Youngkin found a wedge issue and exploited it and people responded. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just a general change which many progressives are celebrating, right? It's sort of, there's this little, little bit of sort of something odd going on there because many progressives will say, the way we talk about race has completely changed in the last 10 years because how we talked about it 10 years ago was absolutely terrible and how we talk about it now is so much better and so much more enlightened and this should inform pedagogy in schools. Now, you know, you can't then turn around and say, there's not been any change, what are people talking about? <laughs> so, let's, let's be honest about those changes. And I think some of those changes are good, by the way, and in certain aspects, I think they're bad. But we need to have a substantive debate about it, not pretend that it didn't exist. Now, one of the changes, which is you know, related, it's not exactly the same thing, is sort of norms about free speech and sort of norms about how to deal with controversy in academia. Dorian Abbott is a geophysicist at the University of Chicago. He is widely respected for his work, which has implications for climate change. And so MIT invited him to deliver a big annual public lecture, uh, which is meant to communicate key scientific findings to a broader audience in the Boston area. And he was going to speak uh, specifically uh, about questions of climate change. Now, because Abbott had also published an article in Newsweek in which he had criticized affirmative action policies and broadly speaking argued for merit-based admissions policies, which would get rid of race-based affirmative action, but also get rid of legacy admissions and athletic scholarships, which disproportionately favor white applicants. There was a public call among many people in his discipline to uninvite him from this public lecture. And shamefully, I would say, the relevant department at MIT, EAPS is its acronym, decided to rescind his invitation. They allowed him to speak to a much smaller audience of grad students and professors on a more technical subject, but the invitation for this prestigious public lecture was rescinded. And my argument in The Atlantic was that this is a little bit different from the many stories of cancellations and disinvitations that we've gotten recently. Because in many cases, protests are about 
something that a speaker is likely to say in the actual event or in the actual lecture. So somebody who's expressed controversial views about race is scheduled to come to campus and students say, we don't want him making these statements about race here in our space. Now, I believe strongly in free speech. I think that no person has a, a right to be invited to college, but once they have been invited to speak at a college or university, that college or university should make sure that the talk can go ahead, even if I find the views that they express to be deeply objectionable. So I would defend even the right of those speakers to speak. But there's nevertheless an important difference, I think, between people coming under pressure because they're going to express controversial opinions on a particular topic at this event, or somebody basically being blacklisted from speaking about unrelated topics, like climate change in this case, because they also happen to have publicly admitted to views which are considered to be outside the respectable spectrum, even though in this particular case, those views probably are shared by a clear majority of the US population. So I think what the case at MIT showed is the creation of a you know, kind of blacklist that basically tells you, you are going to have to fear very serious professional consequences for expressing your political beliefs, even if the nature of your work, the nature of the lecture you want to hold, has nothing to do with those political beliefs. That, to me, was a very worrying moment. We just had Professor Alan Gelzo of Princeton University on the podcast this summer talking about the intellectual roots of critical race theory. And I think there's a, this is a real connection between critical race theory and this sort of suppression of free speech. Because one of the points he makes is that critical race theory is a subset of critical theory, which came up as a response to the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. They basically said reason was not sufficient to answer all the questions of human life and human experience. And it opened up the door for lots of irrational or anti-rational considerations like race and nationality and class gave rise to Marxism and all the rest of it. And the advocates of CRT openly acknowledged this. I mean, uh, Richard Delgado and Gene Stavonic said critical race theory questions the very foundations of liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightened rationalism. So Guelzo's point is that because critical race theory rejects reason, it can't be questioned. And so if you do raise questions, the only purpose is to serve the interests of the oppressive class and any answer you come up with, he says, which doesn't speak in terms of some hidden structure of oppression, can be dismissed as part of the structure of oppression. So doesn't this kind of anti-rational, anti-reason ideology, not only is it dangerous, but it also necessarily results in this cancel culture, that if you come to a campus and you're an advocate of meritocracy, that's so out of the mainstream that you can't even speak about climate change. Yeah, so I think that the intellectual history here is generally complicated because I'm writing about this topic at the moment. I'm reading up a lot on it and getting it right is, is generally difficult. You know, critical race theory does have certain roots in critical theory, which is broadly speaking associated with the Frankfurt School people like Theodore Adorno. And in particular, it has, you know, you can see that Herbert Marcuse's views on free speech are sort of echoed today in much of his campus activism, that, as he put it at one point, sort of a true tolerance is to ban intolerant or what he considered to be intolerant opinions. But in many ways, sort of critical race theory actually comes more from an alternative tradition of postmodernism, which has its root in, you know, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and a set of French thinkers who really stood in intellectual competition with critical theory. So I think the sort of the specific questions of where this comes from are generally hard. But the important thing is the sort of key credo to which you called attention. There is an anti-universalism 
that is really important here. It is to say that a lot of different traditions, including classical liberalism, which is the tradition to which I subscribe, but also perhaps Catholicism, also, by the way, most forms of Marxism, had a set of universal principles or standards. They had a way of talking about the world in which you posit a generally applicable moral principle and you try to design laws or particular norms, social practices that live up to those universal principles, that treat people equally, irrespective in particular of a kind of identity categories into which they belong, irrespective of their race, their religion, their skin color, and so on. And what was absolutely critical absolutely key to critical race theory as a legal theory was to say, this doesn't work. All of these rules that are supposedly neutral, but are supposedly universal, don't actually treat different people the same. In theory, a white defendant and a black defendant should get the same treatment in a courtroom in the United States. In practice, they don't. The system is completely rigged against black defendants. Now, one response to that might have been, look, we sometimes fall short of those universal standards. That is a fair and an important critique. Let's redouble our efforts to live up to these universal standards, to make sure that when a black defendant stands in front of a jury or in front of a judge, they actually get the same treatment as a white defendant as the rule promises. Instead, the tack that people like Delgado and Crenshaw and others took is the opposite. It's to say, because these neutral laws are just a fig leaf for the continuation of discrimination and racial oppression, what we should actually do is to abandon those neutral laws and to make how people are treated by the state, by other important social institutions, ideally even by individuals like you and me, explicitly dependent on the groups to which they belong. Things like being race blind are actually racist. What we need to do is to explicitly say if you are a member of a historically oppressed group, you will get certain forms of special treatment because that's the only way that we can guard against those kinds of forms of discrimination. And that absolutely helps to explain a lot of the things in the debate today. The neutral law of meritocracy is actually racist because it ends up supposedly favoring white applicants. And the neutral principle of free speech is unacceptable because it allows you know, oppressive things to be said but have the effect of perpetuating injustice. And so we have to get rid of that neutral law about free speech in favor of a law that says good things can be said, but things we consider to be bad or noxious or harmful cannot be said. That, to me, is the core way in which the current political moment flows from those complicated academic theories of the 70s and 80s and 90s. This brings us back to where we started, which is talking about how this is affecting K through 12 schools and parents, because that's exactly what these parents are seeing and which disturbs them so much. I fully acknowledge, as you do in your column, that K through 12 students in America mostly are not reading Delgado, but they're being taught by teachers who are being indoctrinated by Delgado's thoughts and by the critical race theory thoughts, and they're teaching them just like kids aren't reading Das Kapital, but if they were being taught that... The proletariat would rise up. The proletariat would rise up and to see everything through a a class of oppressors and oppressed, and the bourgeoisie is the oppressor and you, the proletariat, are the oppressed. It's the same thing that kids are being taught to see everything through the prism of race. They're being taught to believe that equality under law, colorblindness, all these principles are wrong. And it's because of the pandemic that parents actually started rising up about this because most of us standing and we're talking about this the other day. Most of us drop our kids off at school. We go to work. We come home and maybe we get a few words with them over dinner and they tell us what happened in school today. 
during the pandemic, parents were home working and they were co-teaching their kids and they were seeing what was being discussed in the classes and they didn't like it. They saw these principles being indoctrinated in their kids. And this is what started this parent uprising. You point this out in the Atlantic piece that many teachers have over past years begun to adopt a pedagogical program that owes its inspiration to the ideas that are fashionable on the academic left. So this is permeating into the classroom, isn't it? Well, to me, one of the fundamental questions of this moment that I try to think through in my next book called The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Societies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure, is you know, how you deal with the persistence of racial injustice, which certainly exists in the United States and many other democracies in the world. And I think there is a crucial moment in which a bunch of scholars came up with an idea that at first sounds perfectly reasonable, which is to say, look, a bunch of people in our society are being discriminated against, are suffering disadvantage on the basis of a group identity. They're being treated more poorly because they're black or they're Latino. And so what do we do about that? And, you know, even though they at some theoretical level acknowledge that these ethnic and racial groups are relatively arbitrary, that race is, as academics like to say, a social construct, they came to say, look, if people are being oppressed along those lines, then the only way to overcome that oppression is for them to band together and fight on those grounds. And they called that, in the words of Spivak, literary theorist at Columbia University, strategic essentialism. So for strategic purposes, we should treat those identity categories as the the really true and a fundamental fact about people. That was a reasonable theory, but I think it led us into something quite dangerous, which is a whole pedagogical program, as well as an activist program, that says, hey, the way we're going to overcome injustice is not to tell 10-year-olds or 7-year-olds or 15-year-olds, there's injustice in this country and you're going to have to struggle to overcome it. And the best way to do that is to realize that you have interests in common with people from different groups, but actually the deepest thing about you is not your race or ethnicity. It's to do the opposite, to say, the most important thing about you is that you are a member of this oppressed group. And the most important thing that you need to learn is to stand in solidarity with this group and to see other groups, in particular those groups that have historically been dominant, as sort of adversaries. And it is also sometimes to go to the majority group or the historically advantaged group and say, hey, you need to actually, this is something that Robin DeAngelo says, for example, you need to own the fact of whiteness. You know, It's bad if you don't define yourself primarily as white, because that's a way of trying to push away the privilege you enjoy and not be conscious of it. So what we want you to do is to identify as a white person in order to then give up all of the privileges that come with that. And I just think that that is historically naive. It is naive about the nature of human psychology, which is always to favor the in-group and discriminate against the out-group unless you have social institutions pushing against that. And so it really will undermine the goals that many of those movements and many of those scholars have. It'll create a society in which we're more tribal in which those with social power are more likely to try to perpetuate their advantages rather than to overcome it. And that's, I think, in complicated ways at stake in a lot of this debate at the moment. Should we want our institutions, which include political institutions and media outlets, but also our schools and our universities? And our police and our law enforcement. And so on. But should we want them to teach people that In the end, as Americans, we have lots of interests in common, we have lots of values in common, and we can try together to overcome remaining injustices in our country? Or should we teach people that it is good for you to make your primary identity to be black or to be Latino, or for that matter, to be white, that that somehow is a path towards progress? 
And I fear that that idea that this is somehow how we make political progress is both unrealistic in terms of like the effects of that kind of pedagogical program and, you know, normatively wrong, wrong in the vision of society that it holds out, wrong in the kind of country that it would create even if it succeeded. I mean, just further to this question, what has perplexed me, not about the philosophical foundations of this, not even about the practices that are suggested, but about the outcomes that feel almost inevitable because we are seeing so many of them, is this sort of re-racialization of society, this reversal of everything that civil rights pioneers fought for, which is, you know, a much more colorblind society, a meritocracy, a place where you have equality of opportunity. But I think... It's about the content of your character, not the color of your skin. Right. This famous quote that is now turning into a cliche from Martin Luther King. But what perplexes me about this is why that inevitable outcome is not visible to people who are proponents of this set of ideas, that basically we all become racists, right? We become racists about ourselves, white people, you white people. As a Jew, I remember with intense dislike the expression that used to be used in the olden days, you people, right? You people fill in the blank. And yet we want to you peopleize everything about our society, which is going to foment racial hatred. It is already fomenting racial hatred. Do you see this question debated by anybody other than, say, John McWhorter? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people debating that. Again, I think in my next book, I really try to grapple with that in, in a deep way that draws on history and comparative politics. There's also interesting intellectual misfits at the moment, which is a kind of, you know, non-identitarian far left. So a lot of old-fashioned Marxists who deal with that kind of thing. When you think of Barbara and Karen Field, African-American scholars who've written a wonderful book called Racecraft, or when you think of somebody like Adolf Reed Jr. They all sort of grapple with that from different intellectual perspectives. But yes, I think the fundamental question of this moment is whether this narrative that drives this idea of strategic essentialism is right or not. What they say is, look, all of these neutral principles like race blindness, they're actually driving discrimination. They actually explain discrimination. And so we need to abandon that and absolutely re-racialize people, get people to double down on their ethnic identity, because the best we can hope for is a political struggle in which the formerly oppressed will vanquish the former oppressors and rebuild society in a way where they're sort of at the top of the power pyramid. And I think the alternative account to that is that it is true that we've never completely lived up to our principles, just as no political society in the history of the world has ever completely lived up to its political principles. But we have actually made real progress, that this country is more just today than it was 60 or 40 or even 20 years ago, and that the rhetorical power of these principles is part of the reason for that, that people wanting to live up to the story we tell about our own country, to the values we share, is in fact a powerful motor for being able to make improvements. And so rather than dismissing these standards, dismissing these ideals, we should redouble our efforts to live up to them in areas where we don't do that yet. And that, to me, is the right response to you know, the very complicated history of this country and to the persistence injustices. So I sort of get intellectually where the other side is coming from, but I do think that they're throwing the baby out of the bathwater in a way that is very dangerous 
to anybody who wants to build a diverse democracy in which we get along and are able to thrive together, but also very dangerous to the ideals that they themselves prefer to hold. So you set me up perfectly, and I'm crushing Mark and not letting him interject because I know he wants to as well. Because this is something we look. There's a lot to learn here. And you talked about two tendencies in one of your pieces about the worrying tendencies on the left, stemming from two intellectual mistakes. One is to focus so tightly on the country's flaws that its strengths become invisible. That's really what you've been talking about, also in this educational system. But the second is to believe that the and I'm quoting here from your article. The second is to believe that the right poses such an imminent danger that any form of resistance against it is justifiable, even if it involves violence. Because I I do feel like that this second point that you make is really part of the notion that permeates the left and certain parts of the right as well, that this intolerance that CRT teaches, but that the ideology behind it espouses, is in fact something that has now bled very aggressively into our political system as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that sort of how directly that is connected to CRT, but certainly one of the things I really worry about in this moment is that, look, people have reason to be very concerned about the state of a country. And personally, I'm very concerned about what it would mean for the country if Donald Trump came back for another presidential term in 2024. And because the stakes are so high, it's very tempting to say, you know, this is not a moment to criticize anybody who in the broadest sense is on your own side. So, you know, personally speaking, as somebody who certainly wants to see Donald Trump defeated in 2024, if he wins the Republican nomination, you know, it becomes tempting to say, well, let me never criticize something that Democrats do. You know, if it looks like there's stuff going on in schools that people are really upset about, let's just say that that's not really happening or that there's really nothing to worry about there, but only bad people and racists and bigots would be in any way concerned about that that's circling the wagons. I think that that is a strategic mistake because voters don't take you seriously or they get very angry at you if you don't credit their concerns. If you say, hey, this thing you're worried about is just made up, you've just fallen foul to this evil lie told by racists, so shut up. Well, then people say, well, you think I'm stupid and you don't think that how I see the world, is it all accurate? Is it all fair? And so why should I trust you to to actually have my interests at heart? Why should I trust you to actually want to stand up for the things that I care about? So I think that this is sort of strategically clever by half in a way that's very likely to backfire. And you are right that it then also makes it hard to stand up to genuine injustices on your own side. One small The telling way in which I've seen that in the last years is the excuses that some people on the left have for a long while made about Antifa, which is not the most powerful or the most threatening organization in the United States, but that clearly has, you know, very violent elements. And you've seen again and again, you know, opinion pages, in some cases politicians, being unwilling to clearly condemn violence, which they think, if only because of the name of the organization, somehow stands up against the bad guys. And that certainly is a way of undermining the key norm against political violence that we all need to sustain our democratic system. 
You brought me directly to my exit question, which is, will not the embrace of critical race theory ultimately lead to violence? Because you talk about how it's a re-racialization, it's bringing us back into tribalism, and that they're saying that people have to identify by their race. You are white and you have to own your whiteness. And some white people will look at that and say, okay, you have your critical race theory, which rejects reason, which rejects colorblindness, which rejects equality before the law. Well, I'm going to have my critical race theory as well. And it's also going to reject those things, but I'm going to fight for my whiteness. Exactly. Jim Jim Crow, Hitler, that stuff. This will actually end up fueling and almost legitimizing white supremacy because people say, "Okay, you can have your critical race theory. I can have mine and let's fight it out. If you don't have reason and you don't have equality before the law and you throw out all the institutions that hold our country together, the ultimate result will be violence, won't it? Well, you know, I think it's always difficult to know what leads to what in social science. And thankfully, the one reason why I'm a little bit less concerned about this whole set of educational questions than some people I know is that, you know, school students tune out a lot that's happening in the classroom. I think one thing that sort of both sides of the political spectrum currently get wrong is that they have a sense that tension between different demographic groups in the country is really rising because political tensions between Democrats and Republicans are rising. But actually, when you look at developments on the ground, I think they're continuing to improve. You know, the condition of members of historic disadvantaged groups or ethnic minorities is continuing to improve significantly. They earn more than they used to. They uh, attain higher degrees. There's actually an astounding speed with which the children and grandchildren of Latino immigrants, for example, attain a higher educational degrees than the first generation did. And there's actually more friendship and more relationships, more intermarriages between different groups as well. So I think actually my overall assessment of where we're going at the moment in the United States underneath the political level is pretty positive, it's pretty optimistic. But having said all of that, there is a very important question about how our institutions can support those developments or at least not mess them up. And there I absolutely agree with you that when I look at the practices that are now commonplace, particularly in elite private schools more than public schools, but it's at were friends at Dalton School in New York and many of these really influential elite private schools. And they take these kids and separate them into different groups based on the color of their skin in the hope of raising political awareness and keeping with this idea of strategic essentialism. Then yes, I do fear that this is not going to have the intended effect. It's not going to somehow for example, teach the white kids that they should give up their privilege, it's going to teach them that, hey, the most important thing about me is that I'm white. This is why they've placed me in this group. This is what I have in common with these other people in the peer group. And actually, perhaps we should be proud of that. Actually, perhaps that is, you know, if that's a key part of my identity, that's something that I should value positively. And that is a world which makes me fearful because I don't think that we should be teaching children that the most important thing about them is their racial identity. I certainly don't think we should be teaching white children that they should have more pride in their whiteness. And even though that's not the intended outcome of those practices, I do fear that it is the likely one. Well, I think we've really consistently kept with Marx and my main aim in all of these podcasts, which is to end on an extraordinarily depressing and dispiriting note. (laughs) (laughs) No, I disagree. He ended on a very positive note, which is despite all of these debates, things are really getting better. 
Well, okay. That's optimistic. There you go. Mark is a happy warrior. I'm more of a hater, but I really did enjoy enjoy this podcast very much. Thank you so much, Yasha, for taking the time to join us and for writing these really, truly excellent and fascinating articles. Thank you so much to both of you. All right. Take care. So that was a little bit nerdy. Let's admit it. We're not always nerdy, but that was kind of nerdy. And yet, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, as I said to Yasha, we work at a think tank, and sometimes a little nerdification is good. You just got in a huge fight because of your article in the Washington Post about this, in which people were viciously tweeting that you misunderstood Immanuel Kant. <laughs> if there's a Twitter war breaking out over Immanuel Kant, then uh, we are... Uh... At least making progress. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> that's, the, that's the best moment Twitter has had in a long time. That's true. It's a, good, it's a good Twitter moment. We didn't talk about something that I really care about a lot, and nobody will be surprised to hear me say it's foreign policy. So when you teach students that America is not just a country with flaws, but a country that is intrinsically flawed, that we are a bad country, that what is great about this country is not that we are striving always to be our best, even though we sometimes fail. What is actually important to understand about this country is that everything we do is tainted. And every analysis we make is wrong because it is based on a construct of understanding that fundamentally is evil. When you teach people that, even if they have doubt, even if that's not what they're hearing at home, they begin to question our role in the world. You've heard me say that before. Right. To preach democracy. Who are we to preach the principles of the Declaration of Independence, which is the part of the structural racism that advances oppression around here? Who are we to teach equality before the law when we need to get rid of equality before the law in this country? You're absolutely right. It completely undermines not just our unity as a country, but our ability to project our values and advance our values, which is what millions of people around the world are confused at looking at the fact that we are that we are questioning our own values and are actually striving to implement in their own countries, sometimes at the point of a gun. I see the product of this in my classroom. I teach at one of the best universities in the country. These students are the best of the best. They're great kids, and I have a lot of affection for them, but I hear this all the time. And don't think, by the way, listeners you know, who listen in purely because you disagree with us, don't think to yourself this doesn't have implications for things that the left cares about. You know, I've said this before. A lot of younger people don't believe that the United States should play a brokering role in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process because we are too crippled, we are too flawed, we are too immoral to play that role. Okay, who do you think is going to do that then? Saudi Arabia? Uh, you know, <laughs> China? Russia? Russia? I think this has implications across the board for what we do and for our next generation of leaders. My pastor has a phrase that he uses for explaining his Christian path, which is, I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. And I think that really... I love uh, that. It's just a great way to think about our country. We're not who we want to be, but we're not who we used to be. And we're trying to live up to our founding principles. We're getting better at it every day. There's still racism in this country, but there's less of it than there was in the past. There still is discrimination, but there's less of it than there was in the past. And our goal should be to get rid of discrimination and live up to our ideals, not to teach children that our ideals are flawed. Amen to that. 
we together wish you on those very, very nice thoughts a lovely Thanksgiving. We hope everybody is spending time with their family. I personally, who can't stand turkey, hope that you're eating something better than turkey. <laughs> but if turkey, lump If you gravy, can get a turkey or afford a turkey because yeah. of inflation and supply chain crises, topic of another recent podcast. <laughs> Mark, always ready for the commercial interruption. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, we wish you all a very, very happy Thanksgiving. We are both very thankful to live in the greatest country in the world. And can I say one other thing? No. <laughs> we had Brian Gatulis and Rui Teixeira on the podcast recently. Yasha's now joined us. I love the fact that we're finding people on the left who are reasonable and want to discuss and still see the value in reaching out and having discussions across the left and right opposed to the tribalism. And we're bringing him on the show to have these conversations because you and I don't agree with everything that Yasha believes in. He certainly doesn't agree with us. And I don't always agree with you. And yeah, well, you know. You're wrong a lot. Mark, (laughs) exhibiting the tolerance that we've just been preaching about. Exactly. I want to continue doing this. And last thing, because apparently we can't ever finish this podcast, we are, for the first time, playing an ad at the end of this podcast for another podcast that is absolutely terrific, very much worth your time, and we encourage you to listen, subscribe, and review it. Take care. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East, on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Almonitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. <laughs>